You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. People know that when I preach, I tend to talk about my like stories that have happened in my life. And um, I've held back on one for a very long time. Um, so if you have a queasy stomach, if you're light-hearted and that sort of thing, um, I give you a warning, maybe you should leave now. Um, this is a story of the most embarrassing moment of my life. So, I am taking a huge risk here in sharing this with all of you people. Uh, there's about 10, of, 10 or 12 people in my life who know this story, and you will all right now have access to that. So, brace yourself. Um, like I said, I gave you the warning. If you want to leave now, go ahead. When I was, let's see, I was about 19 years old, um, I was... I had a pretty new car. My car out back, my, my 2002 Chevy Cavalier was brand new, like not even a year old. And um, my sister and her best friend at the time uh, and I were hanging out. And I was interested in her best friend, which usually breaks the rule right away. You're not supposed to date your sister's best friends. Um, and she was interested in me. So we're thinking about maybe dating. Okay, you guys, I'm being real with you. I was a teenage guy, wanted to date somebody. So... We're hanging out, the three of us, right? And she's the girl that I like, so naturally I let her sit in the seat beside me. Um, and my sister is in the back seat. Um, luckily, they were both on that side of the car. And um, this is something typical teenagers don't do. We were at a prayer meeting uh, at my church. This is my idea of a date, apparently. We're, we're praying at a church, and I'm starting to not feel well. So most of the prayer meeting, I'm in the bathroom, and like I'm just still, still not feeling well. We're done um, with the prayer meeting, we get in the car and her house is like a half hour away from mine. And I'm like, oh, we're going to drive, drop her off. And then we'll come back to my house. And there's a long stretch of road kind of out in like a farm area that, um, goes toward my house. And I pass it thinking I'm going to go to her house first, drop her off. And I get like a quarter of a mile away from that road that I should have turned on for my house. And I realize I really don't feel well. This is going to be bad. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to have my mom drop you off, which right there is a bad, like, hey, I'm the cool guy, date me. Hey, let me get my mom to drop you off. Um, that's not a good start. So we turn around, and I'm flying in my, I got a stick, so I'm shifting gears, flying down this dirt road toward my house. And I'm going, and I'm like, I, I just need to make it home. I just need to make it home. I get about a quarter of a mile from my house and I'm doing like 65, 70 miles, not 70, 65 miles an hour on this back road, straight shot. Just, I could see my house across the field and I'm flying and all of a sudden this isn't going to be good. And I throw up all over my window, all over my tire or my steering wheel. I'm shifting covered in throw up. Okay. This is, I told you this is graphic from the beginning. I warned you I'm shifting and puking at the same time. And here is my sister and this girl, Chrissy. They're like this, up against the window, like, oh, God, oh, God. They're just hanging on for dear life. I tried to make it out the window, like when I'm throwing up, but the window was up, so that didn't help. So it's on the windows, in my gauges, on me, 
on the shifter, and I'm still just shifting like a champ. Like, I am making it home. Not even a hit of the brakes. I'm flying and puking at the same time. I pull into my house, like, because it's right off the road, dirt, dirt little gravel driveway. I pull in, and I'm sitting there. They both book it out the door quickly. As soon as we stop the car, they're out. And I'm just sitting there, covered, thinking this is the worst day of my life. I'm just never going to date me now. This is awful. Well, about two weeks later, we dated for like two months. I think it was more out of sympathy than anything. Like she felt bad for this guy. But I look back on that day and I realized something. I had never eaten clams before that day. And for some reason, I needed a quick lunch. And my mom had a lean cuisine clam linguine in the freezer. And um, just through pure observation later on, I realized there's a lot of clam linguine in my car. Um, to this day, I am convinced that I am allergic to clams. I tried clams one other time and I got sick again. Um, I love seafood across the board, love it. But if there is something that looks like a clam, I am automatically sick. Like, I can't even touch it. I don't know if I'm really allergic to it or just my mind has convinced me that I am allergic to clam linguine or any clam anything. I used to go grocery shopping with um, my, my old job, a group home, and we would have to walk in this one aisle every week that had clam juice. Like, it's like a big bottle of that. Like, who gets a bottle of clam juice for flavoring? I, if you do... Great for you. To me, looking in that aisle makes me sick and queasy. Um, and I don't know how much of it's really out of physical like reaction to clams or a mental reaction to clams. Um, but when I see that, I expect to get sick. Does that make sense? Like when you see something, it just triggers that's going to be a bad day. Like you just know. Like it, Even if it's not a bad day, you see something and you expect it to be bad. When we look at Mark chapter 6... I see that our expectations on things can cause a reaction in the way we do things. Um, my expectations now of clams have limited me from oysters as well because they look very similar to me. For some reason, I know that I can eat scallops even though they're kind of the same. I know that because my expectation already predated my, my experience. Does that make sense? But for some reason, clams and oysters, eh, I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to stay away. Mark chapter 6. Let's look at this together if we could. And hopefully you still respect me after that story. Um, and I didn't just drop dramatically in your eyes. That would be really bad. The whole time you're just picturing me covered in linguine. Um, thank God for good moms who clean voluntarily. Because I didn't touch my car for like a week. I did not touch it. My mom still won't touch clams because of that. And it wasn't even her. It was me. Anyway, Mark chapter 6, let's go there if we can focus on this. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda, or Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up upon the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out to sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. 
But when they... Uh, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. We're going to pause there for a minute. I want you to see what's happening. Here, right before this, Jared spoke last week of the feeding of the uh, the 5,000. Jesus goes, he's preaching, he's ministering. And there's 5,000 men plus women and children, and they come to him, and they're, they're hungry. They've been at it for a while. And Jesus says, what do you have? And he multiplies the fish and the loaves. We all know the story. Hopefully we do. But especially if you were here last, year, last week, hopefully you know the story. Um, but Jesus multiplies this. He does this massive miracle, and then he sends the disciples away from him. He says, go, go ahead, cross the sea again. Okay, go, go ahead, cross. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to dismiss everybody, and then I'm going to go pray. This is what's happening. I want you to see the scene here. So Jesus, Jesus goes and he prays and he sees there's a storm happening. All right. And he continues to pray. And then he goes out to meet them and says, he's going to, as if he's going to pass them by. This is a strange picture for a lot of reasons. First off, if you're a disciple, the the term disciple is to study what the master, the rabbi is doing, and then to imitate what he is doing. So you need to stay with him and do what he is doing. So Jesus, the rabbi, says to his disciples, hey, why don't you go ahead and sail back across the sea here. And I'll stay here and, and dismiss everybody and I'm going to go pray. Logically, if I'm a disciple, what should be my responsibility? To stay with Jesus. Not to get in a boat and be like, see, Jesus, we're going to go on an eight, nine-mile boat ride away from you. And then you can just come catch up whenever you feel like it. I should be with Jesus. But instead, he makes them go across. This is not just like a weird situation. Like, oh, I'll catch the next boat across. Jesus is setting them up for something here. He's setting up an opportunity for response. I like that it says he meant to pass them by. Did anybody ever catch that before? Jesus is he's praying. The next thing you know, he's out in the water and he, it says he meant to pass them by. This isn't like Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm going to race you across the, the, the ocean here. I'm not going to race you across the sea. Jesus is acting as if he's going to pass them by. Why? Because he's giving them an opportunity to do something here. We're going to look at that in a second. When I, I was studying this week, what does the sea look like? Uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it's about... It's about eight to nine miles wide or, or in length. And from where they're going, I was looking at the map, from where they're at to where they're going is, is the length of the thing. It's vertical is the, the furthest distance. And so they're going this far. And it says when they're in the midst of the sea. So they're about three or four miles in. And then I was looking at how long have they been out to sea. And if you look at this verse and um, do some of the math of the time that this is, they leave, they're in the middle of the ocean around midnight. And here Jesus is around 6 a.m. or so. They've, most historians believe that they've been sailing out in the middle of the sea for about eight to nine hours by themselves. And they've only made about three or four miles. So they're halfway there in that amount of time. It should not have taken them that amount of time. Jesus says that he sees that there was strong wind against them. So they're struggling. These guys are just struggling through the whole night in the middle of nowhere, going nowhere fast. Okay, I want you to get the picture of what's happening. It's not like they're just on a nice little sailboat, you know, across the pond. This is a big sea. Got, you guys tracking with me here? This is a big thing. And Jesus sees this happening. He sees it with them, what's happening. 
And they're struggling this whole time. And then he says, and it says that he meant to pass them by. Why? That's what I want to know. Why does it say he's acting as if he's going to go past them? Why did he wait that long to go out there? Here's the disciples who just saw Jesus do some miraculous things. A couple chapters before that, we see Jesus come and he calms the storm. He's in the boat with them. He's sleeping and he calms the storm. And in that moment, he gives them a chance to do something. He calls them of little little faith. Jesus is with them. He says, we're going to go across. And they had an opportunity then. Jared spoke on this a few weeks ago. They had an opportunity then to either act in authority and realize, hey, Jesus is with us. We're going to get across. Or Jesus is with us. We can just calm the storm right now. But they don't do either. Instead, they go wake him up and Jesus has to get up and act. Here they are by themselves in the middle of the sea and Jesus is praying behind them and they're struggling for hours and hours. And Jesus is like, okay, well, they're not doing anything different. I'm going to go and act like I'm going to pass them. And what does it say they saw? What does it say they thought? They thought they saw a ghost. Now, this is easy to kind of laugh at, but think, they just saw Jesus calm the water. They just saw Jesus heal a woman with an issue of blood. They saw Jesus heal, bring back a daughter to life. They just saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with like a couple loaves of bread. They've seen Jesus do the miraculous things on the sea and off the sea. So when they're in the middle of the sea struggling, they think it's a ghost. The guy who probably looks like Jesus walking on the water, that's got to be a ghost. It's, it can't be the guy who just multiplied fish. can't be the guy who just calmed the sea. It's got to be a ghost. To me, that's just bizarre. Maybe, I mean, maybe they were just big in the ghost back then. But to me, that's a strange picture. He gives them an opportunity to... They're in the middle of the sea. They should have been desiring Jesus at that moment. They should have been... If I'm out for hours and hours going nowhere struggling... My thought is right behind us is our master, our rabbi who just calmed the sea. I'm praying Jesus calmed the sea. This is, this is my logic, like hindsight, 2020. I should have been saying, Jesus, come calm the sea. Come do something. So the moment I see him in front of me walking on the water as if the sea is calm, I don't see him. I see a ghost. Jesus gives them an opportunity to, one, desire him, and to, two, speak out in faith. Jesus had just in this last chapter before them, what, what's, what's Jesus send them out in this last chapter? He sends them out and gives them authority to go into the houses to declare him and to cast out demons. And it says they casted out demons. These are the guys who are in the middle of the boat and they just casted out demons, saw Jesus calm the water, multiply fishes, raise people from the dead. And he's giving them an opportunity to either one, to cry out for him or two, declare calm to the sea. Because he's their rabbi, they should be able to do what he does. They're in the sea instead of saying, calm down, sea, or however you would say it. I don't know if there's like a phrase to say it. Instead of doing that, they just keep rowing and rowing and struggling and struggling and freaking out. Oh, must be a ghost. Do you guys see the crazy dynamic of what's happening here? Let's look forward here in verse 51. And he got into a boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus 
goes to pass them by. They begin to freak out. And then he gets in the boat with them. And it calms down and they are astounded. How did this happen? Jesus gets in the boat and everything calms down. They're shocked again that Jesus calmed the water again. And then it says, but they didn't understand about the loaves, the bread that just happened. Their hearts are hardened. They still don't get it. They still don't see who he is. They still don't see the authority that he has. After countless times of him showing that to them, it says their hearts were hardened. Let's look a little further here. Verse 53. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Let's say that together because I'm not going to lie. I'm going to show you my reality here. I had no idea how to pronounce this. So go into my Bible software, click the little automatic voice, you know, the little Gennesaret. Ganesarat. So there we go. Now we can all say Ganesarat. Okay, it's just me. I like that. Ganesarat. That's what I'm going to put that in my vocabulary all the time. Ganesarat. Anyway, they came to the land of Ganesarat and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let me show you what happens here. They're in the boat. Jesus gets in the boat with them, calms the sea. And they don't quite make it to the town they had set out for because of the wind and the storm. It's about, I looked at the map, it's about a a mile and a half, two miles away from Bethsaida to Gennesaret. They, they were off a little bit in their course. And they get out here and they're immediately responded with the crowd who wants Jesus to do miracles. They want him to heal their sick. They want him, they, 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 it says they wanted, they implored him to just touch the fringe of his garment here. Why? Why do they want to do that? Because in a few chapters before in the same region, we see Jesus land Jesus raises a girl to life, and then he heals a woman with an issue of blood who said, if I just touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be made well. They get off with the disciples who have been with him in every step of the journey, and they don't even have a clue who he is. They can't grasp it. Their hearts are hardened. They don't understand the loaves. And they step ground in a town that's just heard about what he did before. I don't know if it was a few weeks, a few months, whatever, But they had heard the stories of the woman with the issue of blood. So when they saw Jesus, what did they think? There's Jesus. He did this. He'll do this. There's Jesus. I I heard the stories of him doing this. I expect him to do this. I want you to see something. The disciples, they see Jesus calm a storm. They see Jesus feed the 5,000. They expected a messianic ruler. They expected power and authority over governments. They did not expect the miraculous. They did not expect Jesus to calm the storms. The people of Gennesaret heard of a woman who was healed. They expected to be healed the same way. I want you to see this. Your expectation of who God is and who Jesus is completely plays into the way you see him and the way he is active in your life. They expected a ghost rather than Jesus. They expected the folklore of their childhood 
to be reality instead of seeing the same Jesus who calmed the storm walking on water. Do you ever um, have an expectation about somebody like you feel like they're going to be mad toward you or aggressive or angry? For some reason, you just expect that. So when they're talking to you, you see that in everything they say. You know what I'm talking about? Like you expect like your supervisor at work to like come in like with an iron fist. So everything they say, you like, ooh, easy, boss. Like, you know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, maybe... Maybe in your homes, maybe you expect your wife to be upset at you. So everything you say or she says, you think she's saying because she's mad at you. Do you don't, nobody know what I'm talking about? Just me in my house? Okay, let me, let me give you an example. My wife and I have a great marriage. I'm thrilled with it. I'm not just saying that. I'm, I have a wonderful wife. But sometimes my expectations and my vocabulary sound different to her vocabulary. And when she says things, I might take it one way. And when I say things, she takes it another way. Does it make sense? Because nobody knows what I'm talking about here. You guys are awesome. Come counsel me sometime. Um, for instance, yesterday, my wife won't mind me saying this. Um, yesterday, we had a lot of things going on. And um, I'm at home. She went out to vacuum out her car. And I'm in the house. We had just gone to the gym. I know, right? You guys are not impressed or not shocked at all. Um, I'm just kidding. We'd just gone to the gym. I go home. I get a shower, and I'm cleaning the house. I'm, I'm, I do that. I was doing dishes, ki- cleaning the kitchen, and I'm thinking, this is my expectation for the day. Jim, clean up the house after my shower. I'm relaxing. I get The girls are all hanging out tonight. I'm watching the Seahawks game. I'm chilling out. We're gonna, my wife and I, before the girls hang out and after, we're going to hang out, watch some TV, relax. Like That's my expectation for the day. My wife, on the other hand, you got, I'm in the kitchen. I'm cleaning. I'm finishing up what I think I have to do for the day. She comes back from cleaning the car, and we're both happy. Like, I'm, I got music on. I'm, I always clean with music. It just helps me get through it quicker. I got music on. My wife walks in the door, and I'm like, hey, mommy's home. The girls are running. This is like a happy moment. And Ash goes to me. She's like, she's like hey, I just vacuumed up the car. I'm going to go get the rest of the stuff. If you want to bring the girls out on the porch, they can blow bubbles. And then you can get the hose out and spray off the pine needles from the tree out in the front yard. And maybe, and I'm, that wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm in gym shorts and I'm clean from getting a shower. And you want me to go out in the rain and spray off pine needles with a wet hose. Um, I was not expecting that. And this was my response. She comes in happy, says this, and I'm like, you want me to do what? <laughs> and instantly she's like, never mind. Do what you want to do. I- I'll do it myself. I'm like, no, I'll do it. No, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. I'll go do it. And so she goes outside, like frustrated at me that I said, what? And she's like this. So she goes outside. I'm, I go to the kids. Get your shoes on. We're going outside. So we open the door. Haley's putting her jacket on. I'm like, we're blowing bubbles. And she goes outside. She's ready to blow bubbles. I open the door and Ashley's like, no, go back in. I'll take care of this myself. It's not, the hose is frozen anyway. I'm just going to, just give me a bucket. I'm like, so she wants to splash needles off of the, the concrete with a bucket. And she's telling me go back inside. So for like the next hour, I'm frustrated at her. She's frustrated at me. Why? Because we both expected a different response when we saw each other. I expected her to come in and be like, hey, good job cleaning the kitchen. Let's relax a little bit. She expected me to be like, yeah, babe, high five. Let's go out and clean up the, the yard. Like it did not happen. 
So there was about an hour of this awkward tension yesterday for no reason whatsoever other than our expectations were not on the same page. I think we do the same thing spiritually. Jesus says, this is who I am. And we, yeah, that's who you are. I expect this though. I expect that. And so there's this complete mix up. And Jesus says, they didn't understand the loaves. Their hearts were still hardened. They didn't get it. They saw his heavenly power the day before, but they completely lost sight of it. I think we do this a lot. There's this battle between a situational fear, like, God, this is the situation I'm currently in. There's a battle between our situational fear and sovereign confidence in who he is. They, they were in that moment saying, I've never quite seen Jesus do it this way, so he's not. So I'm just going to keep on rowing, keep on rowing. And then, oh, there's a ghost. They should have had a sovereign confidence that there's the guy who looks like Jesus walking on the water because he calmed the water and he's done the miraculous. He'll do it again. He gave me authority to cast out demons. I'm his disciple. He's my rabbi. I should be able to calm this sea. I should be able to speak in his authority because I'm his disciple and calm the sea. And instead, just keep rowing. Just keep rowing. I think it's really easy for me to expect miracles. I'm just being honest with you. Expect miracles in certain areas of my life and not in others because I haven't seen it in every area of my life. I am a guy, my wife is the opposite, that when I come into a financial situation, I don't freak out at all. Because my entire childhood, my parents struggled financially. And countless times I've seen people show up on our doorstep, not like we were the the local poverty thing, but there were times where it was really tight. My dad broke his leg and he was off work for a couple of months. And there all of a sudden people showed up with groceries. I remember people, the money just appearing, like literally just appearing in coat pockets and stuff when bills were tight. I've got zero fear when it comes to finances, church budgets, house budgets. I've got zero fear. God's sovereign. God's in control. He'll take care of it. When it comes to other things though, that I haven't seen him work in, I'm freaking out. God, I've never seen you work out, work that way. So let's pray and fast for a couple months until it happens. Not saying that that's wrong, but pray and fast. That's exactly what we should do is ask him to do it. But all, all of a sudden, I want to try to figure it out in my own strength. Try to, how do I fix this? My wife, she hasn't had to experience the same financial dependency. So when budgets get tight, she shuts down. Okay, what do we get rid of? What do we do? What do we change? How do I, maybe I should take on an extra job. Not saying that. Making smart decisions is wrong. I'm not saying that. But where's my trust? Where's my faith? I was talking to a pastor recently about the miraculous. We at City Life Church believe that God still heals, that the gifts are still active today, that the prophecy still still happens. We believe that stuff. Um, Why? Because I've seen it. I was talking to a pastor who says, I really have a hard time. I believe and I trust God when I pray, but I haven't seen the miraculous. Uh, I haven't seen like the real big like limbs growing and healings happen and he hasn't seen it. And I said to him, oh, you should come with us to Africa next week. And he's like, see, I don't want to, I don't want to hear that. He's like, I always hear come with me to Africa. I always hear it happens there and not here. And I thought about that. He's exactly right. I expect God to do miraculous things in Africa next week because I've seen it every time. My first trip there, I laid my hands on a guy who had a stroke and was paralyzed for six years. And I saw him get up and walk. I saw his family cry. 
I've seen Jared and I the last time we saw a guy who had a bolt sticking out of his leg from a surgery. We saw the bolt disappear and his friends are jumping around because they have seen the bolt for years and now it's not there. I've seen this stuff. The last time I was in Africa, I put my hand on a girl whose knee was, she, she couldn't walk on her knee for a couple of years, she said. And all of a sudden she's crying because the pain's gone. I've seen that. So I expect it there. But then when I come to America, it's all of a sudden like, well, why should we expect it in America? Let's go to Africa and see miracles again. That's wrong for me. I should expect God to do the same things in this church as he does in Africa. One of the, when I was talking to another pastor um, in, in the, uh, another pastor in this area, and we were talking about how come, you know, you go to like third world countries and you see like the demonic, you see the miraculous. Why do you see those things? And he said this, and I, and I thought this was absolutely brilliant. He said, in the U.S., our idol, our God is materialism. The only thing that exists is money, is power, the material, the physical world. Everything else doesn't exist. You go to a third world country, their idol, their God is spiritualism witch doctors and voodoo, the demonic, all that stuff. And he said, why would Satan show up in a material world if they're already serving a material God? Why would he reveal the spiritual world to a material world when it's the same thing? It's another God. It's not our God. I thought that was absolutely brilliant that in the U.S. we expect the material, the things that we can control, the things that we can define. And we don't expect the God of the supernatural to infiltrate the natural world. I think when you look at this, um, this section here, you see something's missing from our story. Maybe you've noticed it, maybe you haven't. In Mark, um, we don't hear the part where Peter gets out and walks on the water. Did anybody notice that? Maybe you did. You didn't see that there. It's the same story. It's the same happening. In Matthew, we see Peter get out. He, well, he says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come. Which is kind of a silly question because if it's a ghost, why would you not be like, yeah, come on in. But maybe, maybe ghosts are like always truthful and polite. No, it's not the Lord. It's... Anyway, it's a silly question. But Peter says, if it's you, Lord, and he's thinking, that's my rabbi. He, he's out in the water. I should go. So we always hear the story. Like this is the part that we all know. Peter gets out and he walks in the water and then he takes his eyes off Jesus and he sees the waves and he starts to sink. Jesus reaches down. Oh, you of little faith. Let's get back on the boat and we sail across. We always hear that story. And to me, I'm reading the book of Mark. And if I'm Peter and I'm flipping through Mark, you forgot the part where I got out of the boat and walked in water. The truth is most theologians believe that Peter is the one telling Mark what to write. Mark was the one just writing it down. Peter realizes when he's going through this, the main point of the story is not me getting out of the, out into the water. The main point of the story is we did not recognize who he was. We missed and did not expect him there in that moment. We expected a ghost. We expected to work hard. We expected anything other than him to be sovereign and Lord in that moment. Mark also, Peter leaves out Peter a lot. One, because sometimes Peter looks silly, and other times because Peter looks pretty good. 
Um, you also see Mark leave out the part. Right after this, Jared spoke last week, Jesus fed the 5,000. Then he feeds a few chapters later the 4,000. And shortly after that, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And then he goes, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, Peter, because man didn't give you this, but God gave you this. Mark leaves that part completely out. It shows Peter, yeah, I said he was the Messiah. And then he completely skips over his blessing. Peter's like, it's not about me being blessed by him anyway. It's about him being the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Let's get our eyes focused on that. This morning, I want to ask you, and my prayer for myself and us is that we don't harden our hearts to the God that's right in front of us. That we don't harden our hearts it's easy to look at these disciples and think, well, that was really foolish. I would never do that. But the truth is we do. I was looking through John Calvin's commentary on this, and he says this is a disease that spreads across all humanity. It's not just the disciples. We do this all the time. And he puts this prayer. He says that we may seek the Lord with new eyes. I think that's beautiful. And that should be my prayer and your prayer this morning, that we can seek the Lord with new eyes. That today when we see him, we see him as sovereign. Today when we see him, we see him as all-powerful, as all-present, as eternal. The great I am, the alpha and the omega, the one that controls and is, is above everything. That we can see him the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's not changed. That we see him with really those eyes. That we see him as our redeemer, our strong tower, our refuge, and our great shepherd. My prayer this morning is that we don't see the work of, that he's done in our lives in the past and then fail to see him right in front of us in today's situations, today's dilemmas, today's problems. That we forget and we tribe and we row our own boat and we try to figure out how can I make this happen for myself. I hope that we see the Lord with new eyes. If our worship team could come forward or just Mark, whoever, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I want to spend a few moments here... And I want to ask you this question. What do you expect from God, from our God? Do you expect this is a book, this is my life? Or do I see him with the eyes that this is him and in my life? Do I expect him to still work the same way? With whatever situation you're going in, I hope but you ha- maybe, you, maybe you find yourself that you've been rowing in a certain issue for a long time, just trying to fight the same battle. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's personal whatever. And you just feel like you've been rowing and rowing, but you haven't recognized him as God right there in front of you. And he's making as if to pass you by, waiting to see how you respond. Are you going to call out for him? Are you going to recognize him as him? Are you going to use the authority that he has given you? Or are you going to just keep trying to row and then respond in fear? How do we respond in these moments? If we could stand and let's go into worship. And this morning, if you want prayer, our team is up front. If our home group leaders could come up front, we are here to pray with you. If there's a specific area that you feel like you've been rowing in for a long time, we want to pray. And we want to expect something different. I I know I made that silly story at the beginning of the service about my expectations of clams. 
But I think in our lives, we do that in a lot of different areas. We see sickness and we expect sickness. We see brokenness and we expect brokenness. When the truth is we should see brokenness and see his restoration. We should see sickness and see his healing. We should expect these things if we are his disciples. If we are his body, we should expect these things.